This is an AMI podcast. Hello, I'm Joyita Gupta, host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. It's a show featuring in-depth conversation about the biggest challenges facing the disability community. With today's fast-paced news cycles, it's often hard to get the big picture. Join me and other members of the disability community as we take a deeper dive into the issues that matter to you. Listen to The Pulse wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Who doesn't want to go to the Arctic and meet the Inuit people and the other indigenous people that live in the north? There's a lot of changes afoot. Climate change is happening twice as fast in the Arctic as it is in the rest of the world. The multi-year ice that covers the North Pole is slowly disappearing. Let's head north, north of the 66th latitude. But first, I need to get back to the campsite. I'll meet you there. Getting Schooled with Miss Lily. Lily, mm. we've, we've had some snow. <laughs> Winter's coming. I know. So we had two really weird snowfalls in the last three days. Totally different snowfalls. There must be names for those types of snowfalls. There must be names for many different types of snows. Did you find some names for snows? Because I heard like the Inuit people have 50 words to describe snow. But um, I don't speak Inuit <laughs> or Inuvaluit or the other languages that they speak in the north. But what did you find? Um, well, in fact, there are 50 words some people claim Inuit have for describing snow. But huh. I did find 40 words for describing snow on the Farmer's Almanac. Farmer's Almanac. Farmer's Almanac of trusty books since pioneer time. <laughs> well, I'd ask you what they're going to say about the winter coming, but I don't... I. I don't know if they get it right that often, but it's interesting they got 40 words. So what kind of words do they have for describing the two snowfalls we just had? So the first one is powder, which powder. is like new snow composed of loose, fresh crystals. That's what that's the description they gave. Yeah, it was definitely powdery snow. We had, we had a powdery snowfall, for and sure. And then like a mix of corn snow and slush, which is like coarse, granular, wet snow formed by cycles of melting and refreezing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's about right. That's about right. <laughs> and it was, slush. And slush. Yeah, it wasn't real slush. It was just really wet, sort of chunky snow kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What other kinds of snow do we get in Ottawa on that list there? Did you? Like the ones I really thought were like, oh, yeah, I know that. <laughs> it was the, a crust. It was like a hard, frozen layer of snow over a top of softer, like less supportive layer. You know, the like it's the most satisfying feeling when you're running on top of that snow and it's like crunch, 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 and you, your boots just break a clean hole down the middle, but it's just snow underneath. I like skiing on that because it's so noisy. You think you're going 100 miles an hour and oh. you're barely moving. It's yeah. just... <laughs> um, what else? I found dendrite, a type of snowflake that has six points. It's an archetypal snowflake shape. Ah, okay. Right? And dendrite. Mm-hmm. A flurry. A flurry. We have lots of yeah. flurries. Yeah. A brief snowfall that produces little to no accumulation. Crust, dendrite, and flurry. Flurry. What do yeah. you think they get up in the Arctic? Because you know what? Oh, yeah. We're going up in the Arctic today. This is all about <laughs> the Arctic. You know, Arctic Dreams I've by heard. Barry Lopez. It's a beautiful book you've got to read someday. It was, I think it was written in 1987. It's still popular. This guy went up there and explored it, met with Inuit, learned about how Inuit live on the snow. Absolutely amazing. You know, they could just walk along frozen tundra and 
just by the ripples in the snow, they could tell which way they were going. It could be, you know, completely gray over top, no sun anywhere in sight, and they would know which way to go just by looking at the snow. When uh, you first said, now we're going up to the, to the north, and I'm like, oh, we are? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, maybe, uh, maybe. maybe. Uh, so fern is one of the snows I think they have in the Arctic. It's snow that's more than a year old. Oh, yeah, they got that yeah. for sure. But that's not consolidated into ice, so it's not ice yet. It's not a glacier. No. Yeah. Uh, perennial snow, snow that remains on the ground for more than a year. Okay, fern is packed down, kind of hard snow, and perennial is just snow. Mm-hmm. All right. Snow bridge, which is an arch formed by snow and wind, which I thought was cool. And, I like, I think you see that more in, like the like antarctica and mm. like with i see those lots of like penguin documentaries i kind of see those yeah yeah they, but i think they, those are also made of ice so yeah they sound pretty cool and i think they have a lot of those you know mm -hmm. where they have crevices and these snow bridges that span the crevice yeah yeah and a whiteout which is a blizzard or squall that reduces visibility to near zero did you know that snow is is the blind person's fog like when it's snowing hard i can't hear anything Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, like it really deadens the sound. That's interesting. Yeah, it's really, it's almost dangerous because you, if you're crossing roads, you don't hear the vehicles coming until they're right in front of you or right, you know, on top of you. Mm -hmm. Well, there's still more names. So okay. here's a few that I thought were like kind of weird, kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. So the first one's a column. It's a type of snowflake that is shaped like a six-sided column. There's a chance we might get them and I just haven't noticed it, yeah. but I thought it was an in, like cool architecturally grapple grapple a grapple grapple also known as snow pellets yeah grapple refers to round opaque snowflakes they form when regular snowflakes fall through ice cold liquid clouds droplets from the clouds freeze into crystals forming a solid mass grapple is similar to hail but is smaller and less dense oh yeah, yeah for we sure have those. for sure it's a really fine little kind of pellet yeah that's cool uh, roller it's a naturally occurring cylinder of snow formed by the wind never i don't believe a rolling cylinder you're gonna it's gonna plow you down like no and, rollers the concept's cool but my, my personal favorite snurt 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 snow mixed with dirt it was it's not that great a concept uh, but the name you know what snurt reminds me of toronto mm. yeah gray yeah. snow snurt. <laughs> but yeah like all, all of these are some like somehow very official then there's just snurt Nerd. <laughs> Thanks, Lily. Yeah, no problem. Time for the bucket list. Canada has the longest coastline of any country in the world. In fact, 72% of Canada's territory is covered by the ocean. I say ocean, we call them the Pacific, the Arctic, and the Atlantic. But really, there's just one big ocean. To talk about his favorite bucket list, Jeff Green, founder of Students on Ice. And here we go, we've got Jeff Green. I've been bugging Jeff to find time for me. He's a super busy guy with his Students on Ice program. He's the founder of that and with the expedition and leading that expedition that covered the longest coastline of any country in the world. Yeah, the Canada C3 expedition last year, coast to coast to coast, but the nice. C3 also started to be uh, known to, to represent crazy, crazy, crazy as well, because <laughs> that's kind of what it was. 
but it was an extraordinary journey uh, in in every 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 way beyond our wildest expectations. But no one ran aground. You did it. You didn't run aground, and that's not easy to do because only ten percent of the uh, Arctic Ocean is actually charted, from what I understand. Yeah, that's right. Like our biggest coastline, the the Arctic coastline is largely uncharted and um we we did not run aground although i have run aground in the past in the arctic um and uh it wasn't yeah there we faced some adversity we had some ice to deal with hey before we get too much into the detail how did you get involved with all this i mean you've been uh, you've led 120 polar expeditions You've got the Order of Canada Award. You've got uh, the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Two Award. You've got tons of awards. You're a you're a member of the Royal Canadian Geographic Society, an honorary member, an explorer. You're the top 100 adventurous environmentalists in in Canada. If there's an award I've dreamed of, you already got it, buddy. <laughs> but- <laughs> you, you know, we're we're living in this society that's increasingly disconnected from the natural world. Yeah, and we we are a part of it. We are nature. We're you know, made of water, and and uh, the the three most important things for our survival are clean air, clean water, and clean earth. Love right? it. Right. Yeah. So, so though, so the more you can make that connection, um, and you know, disconnect youth from some of these other things that they're connected to these days, and can connect them back to that. Um, that's what. That's sort of what I've. I've made my um, career focus uh, doing with with students on ice, and and it's it's expanding to other things like Canada C three. The C three expedition, I mean, that was just it was just astonishing to follow you and and the people that were coming on board, and you know your travels and adventures, and the way you touched so many people's lives and shared so much knowledge and experience. I mean, it was really well well documented. You are uh, truly a, a social media. Uh, a person who who knows how to educate, who knows how to use the technology, who knows how to reach people. That's that's it's a beautiful bridge you did there. You know, I'm just I'm so envious because you really know how to take the nature experience and and use social media and and not sort of sully either, right? I mean, you're bringing it together and you're you're using it to lead one from from technology to to nature, to ice and water and shorelines and rock and you know all of that. Yeah, and culture and yeah, contemporary issues. Yeah. Well, that that part of I mean, all of C three was a, just a gigantic team effort, and yeah. and the media team that we we brought on board for that deserves tremendous credit. But the, the the concept was, you know, we can't take every Canadian. I wish we could have taken you. Um, but <laughs> next uh, time, next time. Ship, yeah, there might be a next time. You never know. Yeah. But the ship could only carry 60 people total. It was a former Canadian Coast Guard icebreaker, oh, yeah. built in uh, built in 1958, actually. And um, I, and I might not have gone. That's an old ship. <laughs> it, she's old, but boy, yeah. they really built them the last back then. Like you should wow. see how thick her hull was. Yeah. Um, and she served her country in the Coast Guard for you know better part of 50 years. And with C3, the ship served her country again in a totally different way wow and the idea was that the this the ambassadors these canadians that were on each of the 15 legs representing a cross-section of canadian society they were on board to share the journey with the rest of the country and the way to do that was through you know this the, all the social media platforms to to allow millions of canadians to follow the journey and, and it worked it was you know it 
why it was so successful was because what ha- was happening on the ship every day was really real and really genuine and very emotional. Like, I've never yeah. cried and laughed so much in my life wow. on that, than that journey, 150 yeah. days around Canada, yeah. because we were just like this every day delving into issues from reconciliation to um, you know environmental issues, really personal stuff, and um, from youth to elders, like the gambit where we talked about, and and there was just a, a ship full of open hearts and minds that made it work well, that's fantastic though i mean and that's a, not a big ship i mean uh, 60 people plus the crew it's we're not talking you know an 11 story tall cruise ship here with four swimming pools right i mean this <laughs> <laughs> no no she was uh it was 60 including the crew actually oh wow that's um, with the crew we had there were 14 crew so we had room for 46 yeah participants and um no she had 220 feet long and there so the students on ice program definitely uh, keeps the team busy. Uh, th- this is for mostly high school kids from all around the world, and we're a charitable organization, so a lot of our time is spent raising money to to provide scholarships for the youth um, because 85% of the kids are fully funded to participate on these. Fantastic, man. Fantastic. Good for you. That's cool. It, it's re- and they're, they're, you know, the, you take it from the inner city, third world, first world, indigenous, non-indigenous, they're kids from sort of a global perspective. And one story I love telling is we do this thing with students on ice called the Bottle Drop uh, Research Project. Yeah. And the kids drop beer bottles in the Arctic Ocean with messages in them, yeah. a personal message and a message from the Institute of Ocean Science. And these bottles drift down the Labrador Current to generally get hit by the Gulf Stream, shot across to Europe, and then, and then some of them are found by people in Portugal and Spain and Ireland and Iceland, and that the scientists can calculate the drift rate and see if ocean currents are changing because of of climate change. But one of the bottles was a couple of years ago. We got a, an email from a girl and her grandfather from Portugal yeah. that do a yeah. weekly beach cleanup. Yeah. And we were like, great. And so we put the student that dropped the bottle, a boy from Calgary, Alberta, in touch with the the family that dropped the bottle, or that found the bottle. Yeah. And he's like, he emails me back about a week later and said, Jeff, I am hitchhiking this summer in Spain. I'm going to go and see that family. <laughs> <laughs> so like a week wow. after they find this bottle on their beach, this kid knocks on their door and says, hi. Uh, my name's Addison from Calgary. I've, I'm the guy that dropped that bottle in the Arctic. And he got to know the family. It turned out the young girl wants to be an oceanographer, but nobody in her family's ever gone to university. And and all these things have happened where, you know, we've put her in touch with people we know at the University of Barcelona. She's, she'll probably go to university and become an oceanographer, all because she found a bottle on a beach. You know what? It, it, and, and a bottle on a beach that came from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. And that, you know, it just to show her, like, it's a big world, right? But it's not that big. So why the hell can't we get along and do do a better job taking care of it? It's so simple in so many ways, but, um, yeah. Here's an adventure not many people would sign up for, spending a year on a ship stuck in the polar ice. Well, a bunch of scientists did it. They had some trouble finding some ice to do it in, But they did it. 
It started in October of 2019 and finished just a few weeks ago, October 12, 2020. Here's a conversation I had with Dave Brown about the expedition. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. High up in the Arctic Ocean, close to the North Pole, a solitary ship just concluded 300 days of being tethered to an ice floe, much of the time spent in continuous darkness. Scientists on board of the specially equipped German icebreaker Polarstern were tasked with studying the impact of climate change on the Arctic. Hey, Lawrence, how are you, my friends? I'm doing well, Dave. So let's uh, talk about this. When I say their goal was to look at the impact of climate change on the Arctic, that seems kind of broad. So what was the specific goal the research project was involved with here? They called it the Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of Arctic Climate. Wow, right? rolls so, right off the tongue. I practiced that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're talking uh, science. You know, we're talking the, the disciplinaries of chemistry, biology, physics. So there's all of that involved. But mainly what they wanted to do was to understand how the climate in the Arctic is changing and how they can use that information to make their climate prediction models better. Because, you know, it's all about modeling and understanding what's going to happen in 10 years, 15 years, if we do this or don't do that. Right. So this was a, this was a huge team, Dave, hundred uh, scientists and people involved, 20 different countries, international uh, representation for sure, you know, with and and 10 years in the making, right? 10 years of planning. It, it's just a huge, uh, huge undertaking. And to get up there and, 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 and do this for 300 days. I mean, that's a cruise not too many people would sign up for. <laughs> yeah, a little different than your tra- traditional Alaskan iceberg cruise. Uh, I imagine the, yeah. the meal, the steakhouse wasn't quite the same on the Polar Stern ship. Uh, Lawrence, so, I, I can only imagine when we're talking about the, the, broad, the broad nature of the study, the number of scientists on the boat, uh, the environmental challenges. What what did researchers experience in terms of challenges along the way here? Well, just finding, you know, a pack of ice thick enough because, you know, they had a whole bunch of sensors they brought along and they wanted to deploy that onto an ice pack. So they had to search and they spent two weeks searching for an ice pack that had ice thick enough and big enough to support their uh, research equipment. They had a Russian icebreaker along with them because, the you know, the Polar Stone, even though it was uh, double hauled and reinforced and it could break through 1.5 meters of ice, they had to find 1.5 meters of ice thickness to set up on. Otherwise, uh, you know, they'd break through or the cracks would open up and they'd lose their gear or they'd lose some of their people. So they had a big Russian icebreaker joining them looking for this. They almost gave up. They almost gave up. Every time they found ice, you know, that was four meters or a meter and a half thick, four feet, it was too, it was good on top, but it was rotten underneath. It was just like crumbly rotten ice, they call it. Finally, they found it using snowmobiles and drones and sensors and things. Um, a, a patch of ice that was about a, a kilometer by two kilometers. They tied up to that. And they, uh, and the other thing is, Dave, they had to make sure they, they actually circled the, the, the North Pole, right? They had to get into that drift. There's a mm-hmm. drift that circles. If they got into the wrong drift, they could have went into the Russian exclusive zone, which means they would have had to pull up anchor and, and pack up and leave. Or if they got just north of Canada into the Beaufort Sea Drift, that they would just been spiraling just above Greenland and Canada, not even getting close to the North Pole. Oh my. So there was lots of things to take into consideration and in just getting there and getting to the right spot. Well, a science challenge and a little bit of a sailing challenge as well for uh, for a captain who uh, had a lot on had a lot on their uh, their their, their, uh, their plate there. 
Uh, well, Lawrence, I know it's really still early because uh, this this expedition just wrapped up. Is there any indication of the preliminary results of the research? Well, you know, I'm just looking at the news and around the Arctic, and, you know, Ellesmere Island, right? A big ice sheet broke off Ellesmere Island. It's one and a half times the size of Manhattan. Mm. It's half the size of the ice sheet of uh, Ellesmere Island. You know, it's just floating around out there now. I mean, that's just colossal. That's the biggest ice shelf that's ever broken off in the Arctic. Then we look at the Greenland, and uh, they now have determined that the melting ice shelf and, and snowpack and glaciers on Greenland, they're melting faster they're, they're, than they're being replaced. So if all that melts, that's going to raise ocean levels by six meters, right? Six meters. Can you wow. imagine? I mean, that's a lot of wasted coastal communities that are going to be underwater. So, you know, it's still too soon to determine if what they learned was a success, but they did, they did manage to stick it out, right? They did hang out there for 300 days and they've got their research and they, they packed up just in time, right? They were there for four seasons. So they got there in October, they packed up in July. And, you know, we were hearing about these heat waves going through Siberia and, and, and the Russian Arctic, you know, we've had a lot of hot weather up there as well. So, you know, getting off that ice flow, uh, they got off just in time. Mm. Uh, Lawrence, I've asked this question to a bunch of academics over the years, and I, I think it's worth bringing this to, to you as well. What's the significance when you get that much collaboration from that many countries, that many institutions, in terms of looking into an issue this important? I think it recognizes that this affects all of us, right? We're just one big blue marble. It's one big ocean that has many different names, but really it's just one ocean that covers 72% of the Earth's surface. So, you know, what happens up there affects the entire world. If, you know, what we know now that the uh, climate in the Arctic is, is warming at twice the rate as the rest of the world, you know, so that's significant. We know that, you know, the ice pack is diminishing to such a large degree that there's now worry about waves impacting coastal communities, like waves, like a, a regular ocean waves, like Hawaii. You know, that was never heard of where you'd have big waves just washing up on shore. But now that's a big concern in the Arctic. And that's, you know, I think there's 22 different countries that have an interest in the Arctic or touch the Arctic or have communities in the Arctic. So there's a lot of countries involved with that as well. But mainly it's just, you know, we're just one big interconnected planet with one big ocean. Mm. Uh, Lawrence, I know you're a man who enjoys being on the boat and likes being around the water. What would it take to convince you to go up to the Arctic for 300 days? Hey, man, you wouldn't even have to bring up lights. You know, I just go, you could save all that electricity. I don't care. I lived in the Arctic for uh, a whole winter and I loved it. I loved it. People were getting depressed all around me. Going, well, what's the matter? You know, it's. <laughs> I've, I've heard, I love it. Yeah, I've heard that it. from a few of my old colleagues at the CBC who used to uh, go cut their cut their roots up in a Calloway and they'd spend uh, they'd spend a year or two up there. Uh, doing some yeah. journalism and, and it's it's about a 50 50 rate some folks love being up there some folks not so much yeah it's it's not for everybody and if when you go to a calendar and you ask all those people you know where are you from and and uh, what brought you up there it's all it's you know they're all from a lot of them from newfoundland a lot of them came for the money and the jobs and none of them seem to be there permanently they're all just you know well they're here for a while but it's amazing how many people uh, have just settled in up there it's yeah. uh, it's a lifestyle for sure Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left, 122 meters. South, south, southeast, southeast. 
few years back, I was up in Iqaluit, Nunavut. I was filming a piece for a documentary up there. I got to know the guy who sells and services snowmobiles. We were chatting and uh, I got to learn a little bit about traveling by snowmobile in the Arctic on the frozen ice. Not flat smooth like we have here in the southern part of Canada where our lakes freeze flat. That's not the case at all where you got tons of ice ridges and old multi-year ice and new ice forming together and shelving and climbing on top of each other. It makes for pretty dangerous snowmobiling. I found these two helmets he had and they had two-way radio communication built right into the helmets. I looked at the guy and I said, can we do it? And he goes, no, there's no way. I'm not taking you out there and you're not driving a snowmobile by yourself with me following, talking to you about where to go. Okay, so that tip didn't work out. But you know what? I do own a snowmobile and you can do it. I do it all the time. I have a two-up machine, so that means there's plenty of room on the sled for two people sitting one in front of the other. I sit in front. The snowmobile's got a gas and a brake and a handlebar that you turn, much like a bicycle. Well, the nice thing about a snowmobile, if you fall off, it's not that far down to the ground, and there's usually soft snow there to fall into. You get on the snowmobile, start it up, and my buddy will sit behind me, and they'll put their hands on my shoulders. You gotta put your hands somewhere, you gotta hang on to something, so they hang on to my shoulders. I drive, and if they give me a little shake on the right, I turn a little bit to the right. If they give me a hard shake on the right shoulder, I turn hard to the right. Same with the left. And to slow down, they give me a little shake. I slow down. To speed up, they push me on the shoulders. And to brake, they give me a little harder shake on both shoulders, and then I'll brake. It's a lot of fun. I have no idea how fast I'm going because, really, the snowmobile makes so much sound and the skis and the track on the snow, on the frozen snow. You know, I know I'm not going fast, and uh, I don't even want to tell you how fast I'm going because do not try this at home. There's your tip. Snowmobiling. Quite a few years ago, I was in Tuktoyuktuk, and that's right on the uh, coast of the Arctic Ocean. You would think it would be part of Nunavut being an Inuit community, but it's not. It's part of the Northwest Territories. And I was up there meeting with a fine storyteller, elderly Inuit man, and he was conveying to me stories about life in the Arctic. And he told me about his great uncle, who was a blind storyteller himself. He was low vision, but he wasn't always a storyteller. He was a hunter. He had a wife children and like all hunters they have their dog sleds and their dog teams they head out on the ice on the frozen arctic ocean and they hunt they might be out there a day or two and normally it's a day out and back they want to get home but coming home it's always a bit of a race right like who's got the fastest dog team they were set off and everyone was their individual sleds with their dog teams and they all took off back for the community this one man with the low vision somehow got left behind but no one knew this it wasn't until the other hunters arrived back into the community at the end of the day and the women said, where's so-and-so? And everyone looked around and said, well, I don't know, he was behind me. And Anyways, they left him out there. It was too late to go back and look for him. So the next morning, they got their sleds together and their dog teams and they followed their trail back out. And they found him not far off the trail. He had built himself a small igloo to overnight in and he was comfortable and he was waiting. He wasn't quite sure where he was. He knew he'd left the trail, and he knew as soon as he left the trail, and he better stop. But they found him. They brought him home. He never went hunting again. Now, you would think that that would be a death sentence for him and his family, but it wasn't because he became the storyteller. So he never had to hunt anymore. They hunted for him. They provided him and his wife and his growing family with food. And in reality, his status within the community was elevated. 
because he became the storyteller. He became the historian, the one who told the interesting stories during the dark nights and the storms when it was too dangerous to go out kept the knowledge of the community alive. Some of the stories he told were over 500 years old. Uh, Sam told me some of those stories and they were absolutely amazing. And the whole point is not to change the stories because they contain very important wisdom. You don't teach people right and wrong by saying that's right and wrong. That's not the indigenous way you teach through stories. Storytellers also played the role of newspapers, magazines, internet, television, radio. They never had any of that. This was their primary and only real source of entertainment. They had very prestigious lives. There you go, folks. Storytellers. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. We're dropping new episodes every Friday, folks. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments on your podcast provider's site so other people will learn about our new show. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Sam Robinson, and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.